We have two accounts of the ascension that are given to us by Luke, and so we'd like to read um, both of those together. In fact, I'll turn around and read them with you. Then Jesus led his disciples out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. And then over from Luke, or from Luke's account in Acts chapter 1. So when the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is our 39th week of messages on the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And since the beginning of the year, we've looked at the power and work of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus, and here we come to the end of his earthly ministry and his ascension into heaven. Years ago in London, there was a woman who uh, died. Her name was Mary Parker. She had been married to her husband for 40 years. 20 years before her husband died, she died. He had a problem with her death. He was uh, broken by it. He didn't know if he could ever get over it. And when it came time to etch in a tombstone her name and dates of birth and death, there was one word that caused him trouble. He didn't have a problem having the engraver name, engrave her name. He didn't have a problem with her birth date or her death. He had a problem with one word, and that word is died. The engraver wanted to say, Mary Parker, born on June 8th, 1821, died June 14th, 1882. But he couldn't bear to have that word put there. And so the engraver began to press him, said, listen, mister, I I need to get done with this tombstone. What would you have me put there instead of died? Finally, after a number of uh, minutes, he came up with an alternative. It wasn't passed away. It wasn't departed. Instead, he had the engraver put this. Mary Parker, born June 8th, 1821, ascended. June 14th, 1882. Years ago, before the Soviet Union fell, Billy Graham was in the Soviet Union preaching. He preached in six cities over 14 days. He had a Russian interpreter who had come to know Christ years earlier. 
And so when he finished up the last preaching engagement, he and his interpreter were headed to the airport, and Billy Graham said to him, do you have any advice for me for my preaching? The man looked him in the eye and immediately said, yes, I do. If I were you, I'd emphasize the resurrection more. Now, what would cause a Russian translator to say that to Billy Graham? Emphasize the resurrection more. Well, he knew that without a resurrection, there is no proof that the gospel is true. You ask most Christians, name for me the high points of Jesus' life and ministry. And they'll name three. The birth of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of the Christ. Now, if that's true, if there are three high points of Jesus' life and ministry, and they end with the resurrection, then I ask you this. Why does Jesus hang around for 40 days? I mean, the Bible makes it clear on the first day of the week, on Easter, he sees most of his disciples. They're gathered together in the upper room. Within hours of the resurrection, he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Within hours of the resurrection, he restores Mary Magdalene, Thomas, and Peter. So why does he wait for 40 days to issue the Great Commission? Why does he wait 40 days lingering in Jerusalem and around the area of Jerusalem? Why does he tell them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promised power of the Holy Spirit? Why these 40 days after the resurrection? Those are good questions, and Luke answers them. In fact, Luke answers them in such a complete way that he gives us two separate accounts of the ascension. Luke values the ascension of Jesus Christ so much that he gives us two accounts of it. And the Germans long ago must have understood that Luke was right because every school in Germany, even to this day, on Ascension Day, give all of the students the day off. They call it Christ's Journey into Heaven Day. The framers of the first two confessions of the church, the Nicene Creed and, and the Apostles' Creed, both emphasize the Ascension. In fact, they put the Ascension as the capstone of Jesus' work in his life and ministry on earth. In fact, the Apostles' Creed has the ascension being the link between Jesus' work on the earth and Jesus' work in heaven. You see, when you examine the New Testament, you see there are really four high marks in Jesus' ministry. His birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. No one can properly understand the ascension of Jesus Christ, and all that it means to every believer without seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in it. And Luke knows that. And that's why he ends his gospel with three verses detailing the ascension, and he begins his second work, the book of Acts, with the story of the ascension. 
And so with all of that in mind, let's dig in. First of all, notice the time of the ascension. Jesus presented himself alive to them, the disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, the number 40 is very important in the Bible, and you know that. 40 is a number that symbolizes a complete period of time, a complete work. When God sends the flood, he tells Noah and his family to get into the ark, and as soon as they get into the ark, it begins to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. When God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell him, let my people go, Moses is 80. At 40, he flees from Egypt. Forty years later, he goes back to Egypt. When God called Israel out of Egypt, and they murmur in the wilderness, God made them travel, wander for 40 years until the generation has died. There are tons of 40s in the Bible. But none are more relevant than the first 40 days of Jesus' earthly ministry and the last 40 days of his ministry. Remember his first 40 days? Luke tells us about it in chapter 4. He says, as soon as Jesus is baptized, he is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. Three times Satan comes and tempts Jesus. He tempts him with the same temptations he uses on us. Provision, prestige, and power. And Jesus, at every one of those temptations, submits himself, not to Satan, but he submits himself, body, soul, and spirit, to the Holy Spirit and his leadership. And the evidence that he submits himself to the Holy Spirit's leadership is what Jesus says in response to the words of Satan. He quotes his father from the scriptures. So think of it. For 40 days, Satan seeks to lord it over Jesus. But he can't. For 40 days, Satan tries to get a foothold in the life of Jesus, but he can't. Jesus kicks his butt. I mean, think of what he does. The Bible says as soon as he dies on the cross, Peter tells us this in his first epistle, he descends into hell. He goes to the torment side of hell and he declares his victory over Satan and over hell itself. And then he goes to the paradise side of hell, and he takes those captives, captive himself, and he takes them to the right hand of his Father. Now, we talked about that at length a couple of years ago at Easter. On Sunday, he rises from the dead to prove that he's Lord of the grave. So he's Lord of hell... He's Lord of the earth. He's Lord of heaven. And that's why everyone who has ever died, who trusted Jesus with their life, we can be 100% certain that we will see them again. The resurrection proves it. 
The ascension of Jesus ensures it. The final enemy of every man and every woman is defeated. Satan is defeated, death is defeated, and the resurrection and the ascension prove it. Now think about the ascension. The Bible calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. How does Jesus ascend into heaven? He goes through the air. During these 40 days, Jesus proves that he has dominion over what's under the earth, what's on the earth, what's over the earth. Someone has said Jesus traverses from the lowest depths to the highest heights like a conqueror who is looking over all the provinces that are subdued by his might. Are these 40 days important to Luke? You better believe they are. Because they are the final statement of Jesus' true identity. He's not only Lord of this world, he's the Lord of the kingdom of God forever and ever. Amen. And second, notice the place of the ascension. Then Jesus led his disciples out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now notice the verb Luke uses here. He says, Jesus led his disciples. It's exactly the same word Luke uses to describe the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness. There Luke says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness for 40 days. There the Holy Spirit leads Jesus. Here, three years later, Jesus leads his disciples. Not into the wilderness, but into a place of tremendous communion with God. In the book of Acts, it says that they go about a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. A Sabbath day's journey is about three-quarters of a mile. So they go east, out of Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey. That's what he says in Acts. But in Luke, he says, he leads them to Bethany. Now, some see a contradiction here because Bethany is two miles to the east of Jerusalem. But there is no contradiction because between Jerusalem and Bethany is a place called the Mount of Olives. In fact, Bethany is a town located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So what Luke is saying is Jesus leads them out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. Now, is that a place of significance? I mean, think of all that happens in Jesus' ministry on the Mount of Olives. He sits there and he prophesies that the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed because of its unbelief. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus has taken his disciples and he's prayed with them and he's revealed all kinds of mysteries to them. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus struggles in the garden. It's a place where Satan comes and throws his full force at Jesus and Jesus turns them aside. Of all of the places on earth from which Jesus will ascend, there is no more holy spot than here on the Mount of Olives. There's no spot more meaningful than this. You know what it means? You know what it means to us?
that Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives. It means there is no pain that we ever endure that we will not rise out of. There is no suffering that any Christian can ever experience that they will not ascend from. There is no grief, there is no loss, there is no problem, there is no difficulty, there is no abandonment in life that we who know Christ will not ascend out of. Spurgeon said it this way, From the bed of death we die, and from that bed of death we ascend with him into glory. Now think about the first spot that Jesus touched as God in the flesh. It was a manger. It was in a cave. It was in the darkness. It was among the straw. God among the straw. That's how the gospel begins. But look how it ends. It ends on a mountaintop. Of all the places from which Jesus could select to ascend into heaven... He ascends from the Mount of Olives that we might never forget that God came down so that we will go up. And what a glorious truth that is. And then third and finally, notice not only the time and the place, notice the essence of the ascension. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. Now we use the word blessing in a lot of different ways. Some of us get to the dinner table and we say to someone, would you ask the blessing? And there's a woman my mother knows. I know her too. She doesn't say it that plainly. She simply looks in your direction, especially if you know, she knows you have reverend in front of your name, and says, do you mind? Do you mind? Do you mind offering the blessing? If you're a Protestant, you go to a Roman Catholic church and they're ready to celebrate the Mass and you go forward, you know, you, what you do, you cross your, your arms like this and instead of getting the host, you get the priest offering a blessing over you. You go to a wedding reception with Tim Williams and you go to the cookie table and you'll hear him say, I'm here to bless a few more cookies. <laughs> But it's interesting, the word blessing comes from the Anglo-Saxon word blutzen, which literally means out of his side. You see, when the Anglo-Saxons talked about blessing, they talked about it flowing from the bloody side of Jesus Christ. They understood blessing as a means of grace that flowed out of the side of the crucified Lord. And so Luke says, while he was blessing them, and he says, while he was blessing them, and, and the normal posture for blessing is to raise your hands, imagine the nail prints were fully visible to them. While he was blessing them, he was taken up. You know, some people say, you know, when I die, I want to make sure I've got clean clothes on. <laughs> you know. 
I want to make sure I'm not doing anything wrong when I die. I want to make sure I'm not somewhere where I shouldn't be when I die. Ladies and gentlemen, if you know Christ, as soon as he takes you home, he's blessing you, no matter where you are. So Luke says, while he was blessing them, he's taken up. In other words, God's first half of his plan is complete. Jesus has come. Jesus has lived a perfect life to be credited to us. He's died on the cross. Out of his side, he's given birth to a new body, which is called the church. And now, 40 days later, he leads them to the exact spot of his greatest struggle, the place where he trusted the Holy Spirit rather than Satan. And there he entrusts us to his care and his nurture, the nurture and care of the Holy Spirit who empowered him. And from that point on, the Holy Spirit and the ascended Lord will work together. Think about it. The same Jesus who walked this earth now sits on the throne of heaven. Do you know what that means? That means there's no temptation that you will ever face that Jesus will not say, I know what it's like to face that. You know what that means? That means that in the face of every repentant prayer, Jesus will say, neither do I condemn you. Go in peace. Sin no more. In the face of every failure, he'll say, feed my sheep. In the face of every fear, he'll say, fear not. In the face of every doubt, he'll say, put your fingers in these nail prints and your hand in my side. In the face of every worry, he will say, are you not more, more valuable to me than sparrows? In the face of every suffering, he'll say, no one sinned, but that the grace of God might be manifested. In the face of every troubled heart, he'll say, come to me and I'll give you rest. You see, there's absolutely no issue in our life that we will ever face that Jesus hasn't addressed. And now, because of the ascension, the words of Mary and Martha at the gravesite of their brother will never be true. Remember what they said to him? Lord, if you had been here. We can never say that. Because the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. He's always with us, even when it seems as though he isn't. The transcendent Lord is here. In the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. To meet every need to quench every thirst according to his riches and glory. Now think of that. When he was on the earth, he divested himself of his riches and glory. Philippians 2. He humbled himself. He divested himself of his riches. But when he ascends, he gets his riches back. No wonder, he says, greater things will you do than I've done. You know, for years, I wondered what that meant. 
I mean, would we walk on bigger bodies of water than the Sea of Galilee? Would we raise more than three people? But then I discovered the Greek word for greater, myzon, which literally means larger in number. What Jesus is saying when he says greater things will you do, he means more things will you do than I have done. How? It's the end of that verse in John 14. Because I'm going to the Father. You will do more things, greater things than I have done because I'm going to the Father. Everyone who trusts Christ is a recipient of his riches and glory. Before the ascension, his riches were confined to heaven. Now, Because he's ascended into heaven, his riches in glory are spread to us so that we might do what Barack Obama said to Joe the plumber about money so that we might spread them around. Spread the riches of Christ around. This week I was talking with Jim Alm who said this, I think the Lord chose us to go through this. What do you think? I said, I think you're absolutely right. Because in a world that's filled with tragedy, people desperately need to see what Christ can do in the face of it. You know what Christ can do in the face of tragedy? He can ascend into heaven. From there he can pray for us. There he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can impart his riches to us. The world's filled with tragedy. What the world needs to see is the difference that Christ makes in a life in the face of it. And the resurrection... And the ascension, ensure it. Think about that. Amen.